This is a Soul Fire production. Hi, this is Kimberly Kleiman Lee, executive coach, performance consultant, and host of the Do I Dare podcast. If you're a leader who wants to inspire, empower, and raise the leadership bar, then you have come to the right place, my friend. Here you will get access to powerful yet practical solutions that elevate your performance and dissolve roadblocks. Do you dare to lead in a way that moves the needle and scales the impact? Yeah? Then let's do it. Scott, welcome to the Do I Dare podcast. Thank you, Kimberly. It's great to be with you. Oh, thank you so much. You guys, we have a huge uh, treat for you in this episode. I'd love to introduce you to my friend, Scott Helford. We go back, Scott, let's just think this through now. I first met you when I lived in Colorado and attended a conference that you were speaking at, and I instantly fell in deep professional love with you. Do you remember this? <laughs> yes, I do. I do. I do. Yeah. So that was probably what, like 15 years ago, maybe? It was a long time ago. Yeah. It was a, yeah. Yeah. 12 to 15 years ago. And you were Boom. just doing your thing in Denver. And then I uh, went to GE corporate and um, started working at Crotonville. And I, had a slot, a spot in one of our most popular classes that I thought, oh my gosh, this guy would be phenomenal in this um, in this space. And boy, you and I just took it on the road for five, six, seven years, right? It was a blast. Yeah, you discovered me. <laughs> I, well, I don't know about that, but we found our way to each other. Our brains found our way to each other. Let me, for those who do not have the pleasure of knowing you as I do, dear friend, let me just. Um, explain a little bit. Number one, I wish this interview were on camera because you are so engaging and so animated. I get the value of that because we're doing this over Zoom, but the listeners don't. So let me just paint a picture for you, everybody. Scott is a combination of John Malkovich. This will bring back some memory, Scott. Tom Hanks and Robin Williams all rolled into one. So look, sound, heart, uh, and visuals, all of that together. If you can just wrap your brain around that, you will you will get to enjoy what I uh, am about to enjoy in our conversation. So um, now I will give you the uh, the critical stuff, the resume stuff. So here it goes. Um, Scott's expertise is in brain-based behavioral science, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, um, influencing skills, all of that goodness has him consulting and advising Fortune 500 leaders globally. Uh, and I certainly have been uh, the beneficiary of uh, so much of that. He's an Emmy award-winning producer, a keynote speaker, workshop leader, and author. Um, and in 2014, I remember this announcement, Scott, he was inducted into the National Speakers Hall of uh, Fame. So again, Scott, so excited to have you on uh, this podcast. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, it's fun to be here. We can jump right in. So Scott is uh, has expertise in so many different things. I'm sure folks are going to want to instantly start following him. So not only can you read about his thought leadership in places like the Huffington Post, Entrepreneurs Magazine, he's also the author of two best-selling books, Be a Shortcut and Activate Your Brain. Uh, and some of the stuff we're going to unpack today, Scott, if it's cool with you, is around your content and activate your brain. It's so uh, timely with the pandemic and the situation of work right now during the pandemic. Uh, I think a lot of the stuff that you um, documented in there is just, it couldn't be more um, more ripe for the the picking, so to speak. So now that we're done with the resume stuff, 
I'm going to give you the friend perspective, everybody. Scott is a person who engages his whole brain. I don't know how he does it sometimes, but he writes. Um, he is a musician. He uh, is a phenomenal, phenomenal speaker, keynote speaker specifically, just can get the whole group laughing, crying, thoughtful, pensive, acting all within one, uh, one sentence. He's a meditator and his humor is just off the charts. So when I talk about a guy who can activate his whole brain, Scott is the real uh, deal. So with all of that said, when you and I were together, you were also going through your executive master's degree in um, neuroscience. Right. So tell me how that whole journey started, this whole obsession with neuroscience and, and the brain as it relates to performance. Where did that start, Scott? It started when I was, I got really interested in emotional intelligence when it, right when it came out. When it came out, it resonated with me as something that sounded true, kind of like a universal truth, right? You don't know why it's true, but it feels true. And it actually is true. And so I got involved with that at a pretty deep level and, and went through a variety of different certifications. And so I began to do physician leadership programs for some of the medical companies that I worked for. And the doctors all wanted the science. They didn't, you know, they, they didn't want the touchy feely, you know, are you going to teach me how to hug? Are you going to teach me how to cry? No, I'm going to teach you when to cry. And, <laughs> and and that's what they were afraid of, is that this was going to be, you know, a Kool-Aid of the month. And when the data, when I was able to apply the science to it and, and show that emotional intelligence is just the dance between the frontal lobes and the limbic system and how that happens, then they could buy into it and then they could actually adopt it and use it. And so that's when I got more interested in it and decided I might as well go back and get deep, deep diving kind of in the, in the arena of neuroscience. So behavioral neuroscience specifically. So that's how it, it kind of happened. It unfolded organically. And okay. I just was incredibly interested in it from the, right from the beginning. I had a really weird love affair with neurochemistry. Yeah. It, it was, it's, I don't know why. It's just like, wow, look at what that does. Well, but what I love about your application of it, though, truthfully, Scott, is although you have all of that science um, to help people understand and unpack, quite frankly, a very complicated computer right inside of our heads, you do it in such a pragmatic way. Um, when I hear you speak, tell me tell me about your approach to that. Well, you know, it, it, interestingly enough, that's ironic because it goes back to the emotional intelligence when Daniel Goleman wrote about emotional intelligence. He was not one of the investigators or researchers on it. He was a writer for the New York Times, a science writer. And all of the, the researchers who had been working on this since the early 80s, they were kind of upset that he took their stuff and wrote about it. But what his philosophy was is what my philosophy is in, in, the, in the whole arena of neuroscience and behavioralism, is that the scientists have been sitting on really important things for a long time because they're 80% of the way there. And they don't want to put it out there till they're 100% of the way there. And I think that they're going to find out that the other 20% is not going to add anything to it or take anything from it. And that they're sitting on, it, it resonates as true. It looks true in real life. And so I decided that the only way to make this accessible to people, to all of us, this useful information is to go out and, and make it like something that you could read. Academic material is so incredibly difficult to chew on. You, I mean, you'd spend like the first half hour reading an academic article, just finding the verb in a sentence. You can't, you don't know what the actions do, right? So I, I decided I'm going to make this so that you can touch it. 
and you can use it and it's it's valuable, not just mm-hmm. a bunch of you know neural language. Uh, well, you have done that, my friend. And even over the last several of our conversations, we have talked about the effects of this new kind of world that we're living in with the pandemic, right? The yeah. world of work and life and the, you know, the, we thought it was blurred. The lines were blurred before. Oh my gosh. The lines are like obliterated yeah. now. And I, that was one of the reasons I knew I just had to have you on the podcast because those conversations were just so juicy, but I'd love to get your riff take on, on how the brain is surviving these days and where you see some of the strengths coming out of the pandemic and how we have been able to condition ourselves in a certain way. And then where are the concerns and the worries, of course? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I think if you're watching really closely, if you did any kind of metacognition, which means that you, you watch yourself acting you watch yourself speaking, you watch yourself doing thinking, right? If you watched yourself during this whole affair at the very beginning of it, most people were, were kind of first off interesting that this was happening didn't really believe that it was going to be so on such a grand scale and so enormously um, not such a long ride that it has been and not so dangerous. But then when it set in, people began to earnestly and and I had so many leaders who called me and they said, I'm I'm concerned for my people. Mm-hmm. And they actually stopped the sentence there instead of going, I'm concerned, I'm concerned for my people. We want to make sure that they have, you know, that they have a, a systems approach to how to deal with the, you know, mm-hmm. how to deal with a, a matrix organization. They didn't add any of the work, you know, hoo-ha that they typically would. They simply said, I'm really concerned about them and, and well that they should be. And that's because we haven't equipped people for the kind of stress that we just found ourselves under. Mm-hmm. And we went through massive change and it changed the way that we, we worked. It changed the way that we live with our families. It changed our neighborhoods. It changed our interactions at the grocery store. And we actually saw at our very basis how kind of, I don't know, greedy we can become when we think that everything's going to go away. Mm-hmm. We just start hoarding toilet paper, right? That kind of thing. And, um, but then we become helpful again. And so we have this, if you're not in awe of the human species after going through what we just went through, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that we could have witnessed our brain in any more fine shape than we did, because the brain is able to, to take the stress that we just went through. And if you give it time, and if you actually direct it, it's going to come out of this a bigger, better brain. But most people want to get back to normal. And that's not going to happen because normal mm-hmm. is just different. I mean, it is, we're, we'll get back to normal. It's just a different normal, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be the way it was. And I think that if people can shed and leaders can help the employees shed the idea of getting back to normal and begin to recreate the future as it is going to be, or as they see it should be, mm-hmm. then we stop stressing out, out about, you know, fitting into our genes again. Yeah. We're not going to fit into our genes again. Yeah. <laughs> not I just heard this, um, I, I had a, a checkup, doctor's uh, uh, checkup, and he said, I just read this article that um, the average American, he, he, the study was focused on us, of course, uh, gained 24 pounds over the uh, pandemic. Yeah, wow. that, that makes sense. That feels right. Yep, yep, yep it does. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and and, and we're, now we're in, in reality, that, that very aspect of it, you know, we're sitting around quite a lot. We're not standing yes. up and moving. And what, what it should do is inform us about what we're actually doing at work. We're sitting around a lot. Yeah. And the, 
The other thing that happens when we sit around a lot, of course, is that we gain weight, but we don't actually do the thing that the brain needs. And that is the brain needs movement. Mm. When movement stops, the brain starts to deteriorate. Mm. And we see it in, in dementia. We see it in a variety of different things. When people get locked into sitting and not moving, I mean, it's a real thing. So the other thing that I, I think that you and I talked about that is so fascinating is everybody going home, not everybody, but the you know, a large portion of the work population went home, worked from home. And at first it was novel. We had this bump up in product productivity. And we also had some guilt complex going on, which was interesting. One client of mine said, I kind of feel guilty. I mean, I feel like I'm stealing from the company because I work for three hours and I'm done. Mm. And I'm just not being interrupted anymore. And I said, well, you're not stealing from the company. You're actually just simply doing what humans do. And that is about two to three real intense hours maybe four hours a day of really intensive, heavy cognitive lifting. And the rest of it is spent, you know, going to the restroom, talking to people, chit-chatting, going through emails, flip, you know, flipping through yeah, some kind of unproductive stuff. Yeah. All that stuff. And yeah. it builds up. And now you're seeing yourself in a concerted mode. I think that when we first went home, we thought this was going to be good. Some people didn't know how to work from home. How do you split work from, you know, work from the, the family? Some people locked themselves in the office and other people did what normal people would do, I suppose. And that is that you got to leave the door open because your child's there. Mm -hmm. And now your husband or wife who was at home before, they're gone doing, you know, on an errand or doing something. And now the, the roles are reversed. And I had enough people tell me that they discovered how bad a parent they are, which mm -hmm. is really kind of, I think they, one person did not say it in jest. He said, I was horrified at how bad of a parent I was. I, I had no patience for my children. It looked like I did because I got home and dealt with them for three hours before they went to bed. And so we had all these, these, these kind of epiphanies. And the yes. final thing was this, we see this blending now of you've got work and you've got home and there's no balance there because now what we're doing is we're working. And then on the way to the dry cleaner, we're taking a conference call yeah. doing our personal stuff at the same time we're doing our work stuff. And it seems like we can't get away from either one of them. Yeah. And so now they're, they're, they're commingled and the balance thing is way off for many people. When yes. the introverts start saying, I can't wait to go back to, the, to work, you know, <laughs> like the ones who really don't like people, um, <laughs> they're, they're like, I want to go back to work. Yes, yes, because there are walls for most people, you know, cubicles or doors to close or that sort of thing. And, and they can predict when they will be interrupted. And it's usually because there's a message on their computer that says, okay, time to change meetings now and move from this chair to this chair and so forth. What I found was so interesting, Scott, you and I've had some conversations about this in the past as well. And I would love for someone to do a study on this. In the very beginning of the pandemic, when Zoom was just all the rage, I think it still is, but people have much more fatigue about it, which I definitely want, we're gonna put a pin in that for a second, but we're gonna come back to that. I found that people were most stressed at now there was no boundary between work and home, meaning at any moment their kid could come into camera view yeah. or their cat could cross their, their table or you know they could have a delivery person ringing a doorbell and they'd have to excuse themselves and so forth. And you could physically see people, visually see people get nervous about that. And now a year and some months later, folks are like, oh yeah, you know, my, my, my son, Sam is here and Sam say hi to everybody. And 
<laughs> wave to it's them. Amazing. Or, right? I think that's, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're no longer feeling the need to dress up. I think that, you know, they're, they're still appropriate, hopefully. Um, but they're, I think the, the comfort with it has gotten to a place where at least that stress has reduced a bit, but it's created yeah. stresses in other ways. Talk, tell me about that. What are your thoughts on well, that? Yeah, yeah. So the equalizer that, that I saw happening at the beginning was actually made me laugh. The first time I was with somebody who was a very high stature inside of a corporation, you know, a chairman, a person who wears you know, the, the hardcore, very expensive $6,000 suit because <laughs> it's, you know, investment banking and we're down there with Wall Street and that kind of thing. Never to be caught without all those clothes, right? Now he's at home with a sweatshirt and talking, not talking just to me, but some of his employees who have this, you know, intense kind of chasm between he and they. And all of a sudden his daughter, he goes, hold on, because his daughter has just walked in and she's, three and a half years old. And he walked in and he goes, could you hold on a second? And he looks at his daughter and says, uh, Kelly, I thought I told you the pink ones, those brown ones don't go with that. <laughs> and they literally were doing this on camera. And it was so funny because the, the a dog, you know, is not going to stand that you need quiet. Your kid's not going to understand that you need quiet. Yeah. And so what happened is we, we began to humanize. And yeah. that was a, that is a big, big upside. And for those of you, who are listening, who have a different relationship with your employees now because of this, really think about it, evaluate it, sit down and ask yourself, what is better now than it was before? What do you wish that you had carried over from before that you can't because of the situation? And what do you think you're going to get going forward in the relationship? Here's the big thing that I think is happening is that we're finally realizing what sociologists have said for years, and that is, 75% of the rules by which we live at work are not written down. They are passed back and forth between each other, at the, you know, at the coffee, in the restroom, in the hallways. That, that is a huge sociological, you know, underpinning of who we are at work. Mm. We don't have that right now. And so, you know what we're replacing it with? 15 Zoom, Zoom meetings during the day. And yeah. we think that that's socializing us. And it's not. People are hiding in their cameras. Somebody's going, blah, 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 blah. And we're just being talked at. We're not passing information back and forth as, as, as fluidly as we used to. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to really sit down and look at what does the brain say about this? Because we worked for so many years as an agrarian model, which is yeah. not brain-based. You know, up with the sun, down with the sun. That's not how the brain works. Yeah. And so maybe this is the time we're going to change it into a brain-based kind of work function kind of thing. Yeah. And... and just one other thing, mm -hmm. what I mean by brain-based, because some people will say, well, what, how would that be different? If I was running, if I was starting a company right now, or if I was brought in as a leader to a company, I would stagger the, the time that people came into work from very, very early to late morning. And the, that, that morning rush hour from seven to like 8.30 or nine, I would not put people on the roads because when cortisol goes up as is awakening you. When you awaken from that time forward, about three hours, your cortisol is sitting at its utmost perfect space. Cortisol is not an all bad thing. It literally in its perfect space, it focuses you. It puts you mm -hmm. ready for battle, puts you focused to, to learn the skill and it heightens your learning. That's the learning curve that we talk about. And you are, are much better at absorbing new information when the cortisol is just right. 
But what we do is we have an argument and we get up and we talk to the kid and we get frustrated and we get in the car or the train or what have you. And we're in rush hour traffic. And then we're also reading all of the emails that we have to do. And then we're he hearing world news and none of that's good. And so then we get into work and it's all before 730 and the coffee's not ready and boom, boom, boom. And people are interrupting us already. And we are, are taking the cortisol that is so incredibly perfect and flipping it over the hump and basically making our brain now feel disorganized, chaotic, mm -hmm. and anxious. And that's a kind of a sad thing because in those morning hours, we should be able to do our heaviest lifting of the day. We have low decision fatigue, we have low interruption, and what we have is the ability to do what the, the, that frontal lobe, that human part does, is to invent and create and solve some of the most complex things in the world. And we're wasting it on really smart people. Mm -hmm. are we're having to waste it because of our model. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't let people come into work. I'd say stay at home and work and make sure that you are working on uh, the heavy lifting and then come into work and get interrupted. Yeah. You go to work, you know, you go to work to, to get interrupted. You go. <laughs> you yeah. go home <laughs> it has certainly become that, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, now you and I swap stories about morning routines and yeah. you yeah. know that I'm on this, you know, this experiment. It's been several months now, but of, of the, uh, the miracle morning by Hal Elrod and, and it was because I just felt like I always started my day on the wrong foot. Like I, I, I had great intentions, but I couldn't ever get to a point where, why am I not so focused? Like I used to have goals and things I knew I needed to get done. And especially with the, with the you know, I, I work from home, obviously, because I'm a consultant, but um, I've really had to retrain myself. And the mornings have, have allowed me to do exactly what you just so eloquently said, Scott. They've gotten... Um, They've, they've helped me to become organized, focused, productive, really um, uh, aligned with the goals, at least for the day, for the week, or, or uh, for the, the year. Um, and I find that my performance is just so different because I've been able to maximize the best brain time. Yeah, yeah. And, and you not are only maximizing that, you're exercising it in such a way that you're becoming used to higher levels of thinking, mm -hmm. and it doesn't feel like you are. You probably don't feel like you're struggling. Like you, we, we believe that we should struggle and make our brain hurt and be tired and really harried and very, you know, oh, I'm just so busy kind of yeah. thing. And push have that through going it. On. Yeah. Push yeah. through it. And it's got to feel like that in order for the outcome to be like really worth it. And look at how hard I work. And it's exactly opposite, quite frankly. Mm. If you, you're pushing on a, on a project, and you're pushing at a, at a, a brain-based way, meaning that you sprint your brain for 50 minutes and you take 10 minutes off to, to rehydrate, to refeed, and to rest. And, and you literally don't do the work at all. When you come back and you are focused again in the next 50 minutes, the sprint is brilliant. But if mm. you're going all day long by just being distracted and dealing with all of these di different kind of this, this, this henpecking at your head of all of the assaults to, to your, your stressors and your emotions, you're just always going to be average. And, and so when we get really brilliant, we get brilliant and we can do what we did mm. in, in a, a it, it's basically one hour of focus time equals four hours of distracted time. Yeah. So you learn to focus and you get done in the morning, come gently into the day. And that gentleness is mistaken for, for not being very robust and high quality. It's actually the best quality thing you could do. Yes. You don't have to come in with a frying pan into work. Yes, in your head. that took me a while to learn for sure. And what was so interesting is I have always told myself, I am so not a morning person. 
That is the fallacy I told myself because I just was tired. I was just wanting to stay in bed. And, and what I found was, oh my gosh, I'm actually a really good morning person. When I understand that I was just doing my mornings wrong. You you were doing the mornings. Yeah. You were were pushing them to the late hours. Yes. Yes. If any of you are pushing yourselves past the midnight hour, you're now messing with your neurochemistry and we're really getting good information now in, in this today's world because we're sleep our sleep patterns are different. And if you don't go to bed near the same time every night and wake up near the same time every morning, your neurochemistry doesn't know when to set in. Mm-hmm. And so you feel tired all the time because it's going, wait, 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 are you, wait, you're going to sleep, you're staying awake. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. And so we don't have the benefit of the pharmacy in our brains to actually do what it does. When you get onto a pattern, your brain will reward you with, you will look five years younger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. just will. Yes. And so what about the folks who say, well, but I really am a night person. I really am a morning person or, you know, they, they have this, they think that it's a personality trait, right? What do you say to that? Yeah. You know, people do their best work at night because of one thing, they're not interrupted. So we had a whole swath of people, the the digital people, the, the, the software engineers who people think they're rude and they're not rude. You know what they are doing? They are, they are going through a chain of information and, and coding a, a software package that has 150 million, you know, they, that's an exaggeration, but they have thousands of different storylines that they have to keep all together. And if they get interrupted once, it sends them way back to the beginning. So mm-hmm. they, when, when you interrupt them and they're all, all in a bad mood, it's because they, you've interrupted their chain. So they adapted to the idea of working in the middle of the night. Mm. And you see a lot of them working in the middle of the night because no one's going to interrupt them. Mm. And they can get their code done. And so we began to believe that the really smart people stayed up in the middle of the night. And mm. it's not necessarily true. We, we are basically, we're not nocturnal, we're diurnal. There are going to be exceptions every time, but they're not many. And even people who believe that they are an exception begin to erode some of the, the, the brain's capacity later on in life, they start to feel it. And mm. it starts to, to show. There are always, always, always going to be people who do better in the middle of the night just because they're the oddity. But the fact is, is that you have several times during the day that you're better. Mm. There's many times that you're not. So we're not any one thing. That morning time, you have the least amount of decision fatigue, though. And decision fatigue is real on the brain. Oh, I bet. Are you a fan of meditation, Scott? Oh, I think it's the, it's probably, I think it's the thing that saves people's lives. Mm. I, I think that when you take the time to stop getting input, stop being the output and just be the throughput and sit with what you have and you, been, you begin to allow your brain to allow you to explore it you start to notice that your brain has answers that you never knew it had. And it's all been sitting there waiting for you to notice it, but it won't let you notice it until you get quiet. Mm. And that quietude is just to get away from all the clutter. The input is overwhelming today. And so no wonder we're fatigued. The brain's going, could you just stop for a minute? We have lots of information to Mm -hmm. toll through here. Mm -hmm. And when you do get quiet, you do become saturated in your, in your domain. What happens is that you channel some really amazing universal wisdom that just is profound. And it's so cool when you do it because everybody gets to be a part of it, not just, you know, we, we create gurus as if they're the only peer that they channel it because they get quiet. 
Mm-hmm. Meditation is, 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 is critical, I think, yeah. for so many things. Yeah, I found it too. I've, I've talked about it a couple of different times in previous podcasts, Scott, and you and I, I know I've had a, some conversations about it with meditation. I always thought I didn't have time for this. I couldn't possibly sit still that long. I just have too much to do. And now hindsight, of course, I find that I just did myself such a disservice to feel that being rewarded for constantly going, having the right answer, long hours, you know, those were the things that were the ticket to play um, in a typical corporate environment. Right. And, and you were rewarded, you were given bigger jobs, more responsibility, uh, greater pay, more influence within the organization. And, but the cost of that was you're also more agitated and unhealthy and uh, you lose your patience when folks don't act with that speed. And quite frankly, you lose the gifts that they are probably trying to give you if only you had more uh, patience and, and were more open to various uh, styles of being. And that's what I found uh, my meditation practice over the last three to four years has really helped. It's just really helped balance me more than helped me to be more open um, and really help me to um, to just assess in a way that's not fast, but fruitful. That is yeah. what's been so powerful for me. You know, it, it, it's it's so hard to explain to people who, because I think people have this idea that that meditation is something religious, that it, mm. it, it is something um, woo-woo, that it's something that, you know, Buddhist monks do to change their body temperature all by themselves. Right, right. And while all of that is true and can be. None of it has to be true of meditation. All of it is, and none of it has to be. And the fact is, is that something that's been around since the beginning of humanity mm. has got to be probably some, some really good truth in that. And, you know, the, the, the fact is, is that we need to get quiet because if we're not getting quiet, we're not accessing what we have already laid down. Mm-hmm. The information, it's as if we collect information, but we it, it's like a book collector, mm-hmm. somebody who gets all of the business books, but never reads them. Mm-hmm. That's what we are as humans. We're, we're living in a world that's given us so much information. And if we just take a moment every day to stop up and think and organize around that, what ends up happening is that we end up getting the answers that we're yeah. looking for. And we're sitting on piles of information, you know, 11 million bits per second, the non-conscious brain is collecting information, you know, multiply your time on earth. How many seconds are, have you been alive? You can even Google how many seconds have I been alive and plug in your birth date. Um, and if you have the time you were born, you can even do that. And I'll tell you how many seconds I'm about 1.8 billion seconds old. And the, um, which would make you about 1 billion seconds old. You're, you're what you're like. 29, something like that. That's right. Every year. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. And when you, when you look at the information that you've collected, that you're just putting up on a shelf. Wow. I mean, if you could sit with that and, and ask yourself, what is it all adding up to be? We would be able to answer questions we didn't know have that we didn't even know needed to be asked. We could solve problems that we've been struggling with forever and just the peace and quiet of it. So you and I, just as a, a, a real quick thing, we had to stop the recording for all of you listening because my air conditioner guy came and so we stopped and we came back and you have to recenter after that. It's like work, you get interrupted. What do we do? We try to jump right back into it and we frustrate ourselves because we now hit an anxiety level 
because number one, we were interrupted from something we were, you know, we we're going along at interrupted. We go and deal with that. And then we rush back in and now we are late and we're looking at a new meeting. Mm -hmm. So our brains all fried. If you just took a second, just sat there like we did, we just went, let's recenter, get back into our place and then go. You don't have to, it's not meditation is not always about 45 minutes sitting there with your legs crossed against the wall. You could do it in two minutes. You could do it in a minute. Just get quiet and recenter your brain and say, all right, clean it out. Get rid of it. what was, what's going forward and be present. Oh, that is so right, Scott. That is so right. I had a professor in grad school, Dr. Russ Rogers, who I think is still hanging out in Chicago, if I followed him correctly. He had this saying, don't have the experience and miss the meaning. Uh, and what he was telling us young grad students who, you know, of course, were incredulous and, and uh, thought we had all the time in the world and all the brain power in the world right. was pay attention, like don't go through it and miss the lessons and the responsibility that you have for the lessons and that sort of thing. I was just uh, coaching a client a, a few days ago and we were having this conversation, the, the culture at this particular client's corporation, much like every other you know, corporate culture out there these days was humans gathered for a purpose, let's say a one, one hour meeting. There was a loose agenda, series of topics and decisions that had to be topics to be discussed and, and decisions to be uh, made. And 90% of the group wasn't paying attention. So what they found themselves in, and, and Scott, I'm sure you've seen this over and over again, right? What they found themselves doing was spending that hour together and I always do the math, right? Okay, 11 people on a call, one hour, let's estimate their salary, hourly wage, et cetera, et cetera. This company just spent X thousands of dollars to have all of these high-powered professionals not pay attention to each other, not make the decisions they were set to make, and not have a meaningful conversation that moved the company forward. Yeah. Um, and uh, as I'm coaching this client, I said, can I just make an observation here? And uh, the client and couple of the colleagues who were on the call said, here's what I have observed in the last several calls that we have had. And I kind of unpacked an outsider's perspective. And I said, you could have gotten all of this work done in a fourth of the time had you just gotten straight on your intentions. And if your intention is to multitask and do email or get up and leave the meeting several times or leave early or come late, well, then you've met your obligation. But it sounds like your intention is, and then I just reiterated the agenda, something's going to have to change about the way all of you gather and connect to one another, or you will never finish this project, at least not oh in the God, way you yeah. want to, right? It, it, wouldn't it be funny if, if we had like someone who was naive to humans yes. <laughs> walk in and just watch and observe a meeting, not really knowing what it was about and, yes. and watch it. And then you ask them. What do you think their intention was? And they would say, the intention was to gather together a group of people to watch each other doing email. Yes. <laughs> at, a very, at a very expensive it cost. It right? feels like that, yeah. right? So yeah. I, of course, as I know you are, I'm worried about us. Right. I am worried about us. I'm worried about what work currently and, and will look like in the future. I'm worried about our health collectively because of what you know, sitting this long and, and uh, working this much and that sort of thing is done. I'm worried about my kids who are adopting similar practices now, though, socially and professionally. 
So I don't, I don't work in technology socially like they do. They now work socially and professionally in technology. So I'd love to have us really unpack specifically your book um, uh, that just does such a beautiful job uh, looking at this. Um, So the Activate Your Brain book that I mentioned earlier, everybody um, has some really phenomenal chapters where Scott unpacks uh, not only what he shared on, on our brief podcast together, but also some chapters on how do you move from threat to thrive? Mm. And what are some ways that you could really, in this case, what we're talking about is rebuild our stamina um, to not accept what is, but to really control it. Um, you're, you're also a big fan, Scott, as am I, of you got to control your success. You got to really, you got to design that. And you got to own it. Yeah. You got to own it. So I'm going to pause there, Scott. I'd love to you know, hear your, your thoughts on, give me three to five things that we can all start doing now. Start small, start now. That's a, that's a yeah. Start small, but start now. It's it, that that's one of the big things is that, you know, the, the most difficult thing you will ever do is make your life simple. And, and, and what, what experts do and what the, the, you know, the wisest of people do is they take a very complex thing and they make it simple. That's the hardest thing to do in the world. So I think that if you, if I was on a journey to basically take advantage of the time that we have during this pandemic and to actually use the reset positively and stop struggling to get back the way it was, I would figure out what can we do without. And I'm not talking about austerity. I'm talking about the, the, the weight that we have placed on our lives through expectations of others, expectations of work, there's the family, there's the community, there's the church, there's so many things. I would love for you to sit down and ask yourself, where do you fit in? And begin to add yourself back into your life. Doesn't exclude all these other people, but adding yourself back in means that you are taking at least some time every single day to do five things every day. Number one is to walk faster than a walk for 30 minutes. I don't care where you do it or how you do it. The brain needs that movement. It sets off a whole set of neurochemistry that causes the brain to grow instead of shrink. And we're all shrinking after 25. We're all rotting. So (laughs) after 25, so move every single day, every single night, don't move for eight hours and stop taking work to bed with you. Have a 45 minute sacred space before bed. 15, first 15 minutes, you, you go look at your computer, see what the, is the one thing you want to get done for tomorrow, write it down. What are the, the, the smaller things you need to get done for tomorrow? Write them down. Then you don't have that stuff trailing you into the bed, waking you up in the middle of the night because you've closed it off. The brain's not going, what am I doing tomorrow? And waking you up doing that. And then the next half hour, you take that as sacred space to spend with your significant other, your children, yourself, take a walk, take a bath, meditate, stretch. Do something, and if you do it consistently, pretty soon, if you are stretching every night before bed, when you begin to stretch, your brain's going to go, I'm kind of I'm sleepy. And pretty soon, you're going to fall asleep during the stretch. You're, you're setting yourself up for that to happen. Sleep every night, eight hours. The next one is at least three times a day. Do what, what we were talking about. Try to find, don't try, just do it. Three 10-minute opportunities a day to untether from anything electronic. Leave it in the office, walk outside, get in nature or sit in a room and, and, and just close your eyes not to fall asleep. It's 10 minutes of awake rest. Rest your brain and don't have input, don't have output, just have throughput. Just sit with what you already have. And three 
10, and that's not including lunch. You do lunch separately, three 10 minute quiet times. Then the fourth thing is find a time to laugh. I walk into places and if there is laughter going on with the employees, with each other, you know, it's healthy. You know that they are liking each other and you know that they're learning because laughter is a huge de-stressor and it resets all kinds of neurochemistry. Plus it makes you feel closer to the people that you're with. So kids laugh 400 times a day. We laugh 15 at the very most. Adults are such curmudgeon. And then the final thing, even though the world feels hopeless sometimes, even though it feels like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen to the world? There are so many amazing individuals doing amazing things. There are amazing groups of people doing amazing things. And if we can just take the time to, to connect into those, you know, next door, that, that, that app that everybody has when they move into their neighborhood, it's called next door. You, you get to know your neighbors. I at first thought it was really hokey. And then I started being involved in it. And I, I, I take neighbors dogs for walks now because I'm in there and they're, they can't do it. So, and I don't have my dogs anymore because they, they passed away and I don't have a new one yet. Mm. So I take their dogs for a walk and you, you don't do that unless you're being in awe of our species. And there's an opportunity to, to not listen to all the crap that's going on. You, you, if you want, you know, nasty stuff, you don't have to go looking for it. And that's what we do. Mm. We spend time. So the reset that you were talking about, you, we are wired for the negative. And the reason we are is because our architecture, we have more architecture, about five times more to recognize danger and threat. It's what got us out of the caves mm-hmm. because we're not fast and strong and, and, and we're not fierce and we, we can't fly, we can't swim, we can't do any of the other things that our competitors do. They used to get us, you know, and eat us, juice up. But then we figured out we were smart. And the only way that we were smart was together. The, 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 our ancestors, way back when, were individually smarter than we are right now because they had to learn so many different things to survive. Now. We basically are, are going to experts because we don't have the capability to do all those different things. We now have technology we develop. So you can give me one thing. Somebody else can give me another thing. Somebody, we don't, individually, we're not as smart as we used to be. Collectively, we are brilliant. We are beyond, the, beyond anything we've ever been. And so getting with our community and using that brain power, coming together, is something that I would do. I would encourage you to find ways to get together with people that you that you really value a lot. I think when you and I talk, we 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 do at least every month, and we do it just to 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 just shoot holes in things, and we don't ever know what we're going to talk about. But that's our community. We mm-hmm. get out of our vacuum, and we have that opportunity. We didn't ever do that before. We do it now. We were working, right? Now we're doing it, and this it, it's a different work, but it's not work. And so I would do that. Those five things, exercise, sleep, awake, rest, laugh, and be in awe every day. If you just took, that would probably take you, aside from the sleeping, 30, 40, maybe 50, a total of an hour mm-hmm. to clean up your life every day, to reset that cortisol and to feel really good about what's going on. So, you know, we make it really hard. We make it complex. We wake up already stumbling over ourselves. We wake up expecting the world to be hard. And it's going to be. If we wake up expecting it to be hard, because our brain will give us what we'll, what we tell it to see, it will it will see it in spades. Absolutely, yeah. in spades. One of the things, Scott, as we come to a close in our uh, podcast time together, um, is how I first met you, and that was talking about this concept of significance. 
Mm. And you share a story that has always been one of my favorites. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing it with the listeners of, of our podcast about how you formulated your thoughts about significance. That's a story about your dad. Would you mind sharing that with everybody? Wow. Yeah. Um, holy cow. I haven't done that story in a sitting mode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> First off, it took me a long time to be able to actually tell the story. Yes. You know, I grew up in a family of, of seven children and we are all competing for attention, of course. Mm-hmm. And I was number five. I was in the middle, one of the middle ones really competing. And so um, when we were all growing up, what was significant to us was our father's attention. Because this was the, the quintessential introverted human individual that should be textbook person who actually does never, they don't talk, they don't transmit anything. And so you think they're mad all the time. Mm-hmm. My dad just never talked. He didn't hug us. He didn't, you know, he didn't say, I love you. My mom used to think, you know, Jim, what kill you to say, I love you sometime. And, you know, he was an engineer. So he look at her with that puzzled look that engineers can do so well, you know, who you are out there <laughs> and just look like, what are you talking? And he said, I, you know, I think I, I think when we got married, I told you I love you and I'll let you know if I change my mind. And my mom would think that that was just so crazy. He thought that was his humor, right? That was his form of humor. And so because growing up, it was so important for us to get his attention, we'd get in trouble just to, you know, have our father come rescue us. But he'd say, you know, you, you put yourself there, you stay there. And when I was in 11th grade, there were four of us still left at home. And we decided to play a trick on our father. And it doesn't sound like a trick when you actually hear it. You think, oh, that's really, those helper children are so good. <laughs> but what we did it was to get a, a response out of our dad. And what we did is we nominated him for father of the year. And this is a, not a man who is showy in any way, shape, or form. And, you know, the fathers of the year are for the rich and famous. That's, you know, they're the ones who give big accolades and big degrees and all this, this kind of thing. And so we knew that just the mere mention of him being nominated for it would just he we might get emotion from him mm-hmm. so we wrote a letter to the littleton independent it was the, the littleton colorado um, newspaper and it, then it went to the state newspaper and they they did a selection from there and wrote dear littleton independent we nominate jim helford for this year's father of the year something you should know about him is that well he sends rockets to the moon and mars he never finished college so he's not rewarded in compensation like his colleagues are. They don't send him to meetings. He doesn't get involved with the community. He's not involved in politics. He doesn't volunteer. We don't think he even likes volunteers. But what he does do is every single weekend, he shows up to hockey, soccer, baseball, tennis, and ballet, and cheerleading, and everything that we're involved in, wherever we are, that's where he is. And so, what happens is we are ever present in his life. Every night he comes home from work at five o'clock, like a clock, and he sits in his easy chair with a beer and a newspaper. Every night we have dinner with our father and our mother. And every single vacation we ever went on, my father chose those vacations because we didn't have a lot of money. And he would choose those vacations that they would always be camping. He was a big woods guy. And he figured he'd bring us to the woods, his little clan. And he would be there where he could watch all of us at one time where he wasn't having to drive all over the city back and forth. And so while he wasn't involved out there, he was involved in here. And that's what we believe is father of the year. And he won. And we, <laughs> when he won, we were literally floored. We asked them if they made a mistake and the the funny thing about it was is that that 
when they came to interview him, my father did not know he was going to be interviewed. He had no idea he won this thing. And we told the reporter, Garrett Ray, I'll never forget this guy. We said, first off, do not come before 515 because my dad's going to need to put one beer back because it will, <laughs> it will mellow him. He's not going to like you at all. And knock comes on the door and continues to knock, continues to knock. And my dad's confused because there's a doorbell. And why isn't the guy using a doorbell? You could see all these things going in his head. And so I went to the door and there was Garrett Ray. My dad did not know. And I said, dad, door's for you. It's, it's for you. And he the look at the fear, like he had to go meet the public. Just, <laughs> it was so interesting to watch. So we thought, oh, here comes the emotion. This is good. We got him. And so he goes up and, and Garrett Ray's standing there. He goes, Mr. Alford, I'm Garrett Ray. And I am a reporter from the Littleton Independent. My father does not, he, from the, I think from birth, he did not like the media. So, yep, how can I help you? He said, Mr. Albert, you have been nominated for and chosen as this year's Colorado's father of the year. And my dad turned around and goes to walk away. And he goes, Mr. Albert, we'd like to interview you about it. He goes, you're not going to interview me about it. I had nothing to do with this. Talk to the people who did. <laughs> oh my God. You know, we had no idea that he was going to be this, this like completely socially inept kind of guy at that moment. So we finally got him in, the reporter. And he's sitting on the couch. My dad is sitting on the couch. My mom's sitting on the couch. And the four of us are on the floor in the living room. And we're listening to my father do nothing. And the reporter is, he is struggling to get my father to say anything. And he's not getting anything but one word answers. He's getting yes, no, maybe ask them. What the reporter didn't know, and my dad didn't know, is that we had my three older brothers flew in, two of them flew, flew in for college, and my brother who was in the army, the army let my brother go to do this, which they don't typically do that kind of thing. But And so they all were in the basement, hanging out, quiet, quiet, quiet. They came up the stairs, and they sat in the dining room. And they are an earshot, but not an eye shot of this conversation. And you, you could literally feel the, the, the energy change in the room. My dad, he sat up, he looked up, and he began. He hit his stride. And it was as if he got just this, this big ball of energy, which is, it's true of humans. We do that to each other. When, when we feel important to each other, we pump each other's energy in a way that we palpably change our interactions in that moment. Our neurochemistry actually begins to click with each other. And that energy is something that is so vital for, for the fulfillment that we all look for. My dad felt it in that moment and he, he just was filled with it. And he did something none of us had ever heard him do before. First off, talking more than one sentence with six words in it was huge for my father. And he began and he started with my older brother, Doug, and then went to Mike and Kirk, Tammy, Scott, Megan, Terry. And he began to talk about each one of us as if we were the only person in the world. And my dad was asked the question, what do you think makes you a father of the year? My dad, you know, he was not rich and famous. Like I said, he's that, that all the prior guys, they won those things. Then they were big deals and the big guys in the community. My dad was none of that. It was big to us, you know, he's the big guy in, the, in, the, in, our, in our pond. But he didn't explain his life through his significance. He didn't see the world that way. He, he explained it through his children. And when he started with my brother, Doug, and told the stories there, and then Mike and Kirk and each one of us, none of us had heard those stories before. None of us knew that about each other, but my dad did. My father decided that significance is probably the 
only thing he had to offer because he didn't have money. He only had time and he had a lot of children. And his significance was described through the significance of his children. And as he began to illuminate each one of us for each other and for him and for the reporter, his stature in the world for all of us just grew in a way that we never knew that it would. This man was, was revered by people. We didn't know that he was. That night when we got rid of the reporter and we're sitting around the table at the end, just kind of quiet. And we're looking at each other like, oh, God, this didn't work. You know, it was so awkward. It was like he, he, somebody opened up a present that they didn't like and they didn't know what to say. So they didn't say anything. And you're waiting for them. <laughs> that was my dad that moment. And so we always mistook that quiet for nothingness. And as you and I have talked about in the, the whole idea of meditation, quietness is not nothingness, it's everythingness. The fact is that in that quiet, my father was consuming cafeteria. Uh, <laughs> That's so weird mm. that I still do. It's been a long time before, since I've told this story. My dad was consuming this moment that he was being exalted by his children. Mm. What a great kid is, right? But he looked, when he looked up, he just had, he, he was, he wept. And it, it was the first time any one of us had seen my father cry. My father in that moment became human to us, but he always was. The thing that we mistook was that quiet was not strength. And he basically showed us that when you get quiet, what happens is that the things of significance, they have a place now. They have a spot that can be seen because when you are so loud and so busy in the world that you can't see what's significant, it all gets confused with what's urgent. And so my dad was always in significance. He was always in that spot of listening and watching. And I think that as we move through the world, as it is, that we need to get quiet with each other. And that, that getting comfortable with quiet is critically important. I think that when we create significance for other people, we become more significant ourselves. And that's what happened to my dad that night. The, the fact is that that father of the year thing changed that man, changed him. He, you couldn't walk in the house without getting a kiss now. It's like, dad, you know, you don't have to kiss every stranger that comes in the house. <laughs> but he, uh, he, tr he created that moment. And I think it's a moment of humanity. I think that's what we all search for. I think that this central craving of every human being that our brains are designed to crave this is the idea that we want to know that we mean something to someone. We know that we want to know that we're important and we want to know that we fit. And that's true of your employees. It's true of you. It's true of all of us in every situation. And when, when people act out, they're acting, they're saying, please see me, please recognize me know that i help me feel like i belong mm. so the world is demanding our compassion and our quiet <laughs> right absolutely wow that's a long i haven't told that story in so oh, long i know but it is one of my favorites so thank you so much for indulging me and absolutely um, and sharing that i know you've shared that publicly before otherwise i would have never of course asked you to uh, to do it yet again and i'm i'm thinking that this particular podcast is going to air right around father's day and i know you like oh, me yeah. uh miss our dads tremendously and um this is just going to be a tribute to both of them so thank you so much for sharing Absolutely. that yeah. critical message it was just so great to have you 
Thanks for having me. Our yes to be continued for sure, my friend. Thanks again for listening to the Do I Dare podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share. And we'd love to hear from you. DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn. Share a topic of interest or a struggle that's top of mind for you. We'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. And for more information about Do I Dare and all things leadership, visit KimberlyKlimanLee.com, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and stay tuned for exclusive content access to the tools and resources you need to lead.